Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, it's an email roundup, answering your questions on a wide range of financial topics. We'll find out what Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA think about how to choose international funds in your diversified portfolio, a momentum investing strategy called the 12% solution, and safe investments like CDs and bonds. Plus, the fellows will touch on real estate investing with 1031 exchanges and qualified opportunity zones, and they'll also answer your questions on the security Act, IRA contributions, and calculating Social Security. I'm the lady of the podcast, producer Andy Last. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down, and click Ask Joe and Al on air to email us your money questions, or you can be a superhero and send them in as a voice message. Good afternoon, Andy, Big Al, and Joe. This is Batman. I'm calling from Gotham City, and I have a couple questions. First question is, a person has a residential rental property which has considerable capital gain since its purchase. The purchase price was 300,000. Current value is 1.4 million. It was purchased. Would you suggest 1031 range into a Delaware statutory trust? If so, why would you? Who would you recommend deal with? And if not, why not? Also, I just finished a book called The 12% Solution. Uh, Robin had actually brought it to my attention. And I believe he got it from Alfred here in the back. It's written by a gentleman named David Allen Carter. I'm wondering if you've read the book. What are your thoughts? It's an extremely brief book, and he outlines a compelling investing plan. Third and final question, I'd like to know what your opinion is of qualified opportunity loans. If you do like them, do you have any particular brokerage houses you would recommend? You do not like them. Tell me why. These are three topics I really haven't heard on your podcast. Thank you in advance for replying, hopefully. And I just want to let the three of you know that you put on a phenomenal podcast. I actually have listened to pretty much all of them that deal with financial planning and that deal with tax questions. I find yours not only the most entertaining for sure, but also extremely informative and non-biased. I'm glad that Andy is there to referee. Be well and um, God bless. Thank you. All right. The bat phone isn't working right now that well, but... uh couple questions. All right. So Batman wants to do a 1031 exchange. $300,000 current value, $1.4 million purchase price. Gotham City is uh, booming, I guess, there. Yeah, apparently. So when you when you have a rental property or investment property and you sell it, uh, if you put the money directly to what's called an exchange accommodator or a qualified interme- intermediary, in other words, you don't Get, you don't receive the money. Uh, it goes into this special account, and then you have 45 days to identify up to three properties to purchase. And then you have six months after close of escrow to actually buy one of those three properties. So that's what he's referring to. And what that does is it defers your gain. So in other words, the gain that he would have to pay in this particular example, $1.1 million of gain, that would get deferred into the next property. And he would not have to pay that tax until he actually sold that property, although he could do another 1031 exchange and, and delay it indefinitely. So then, But he wants to go into a DST. Right, Delaware Statutory Trust. So when you do a 1031 exchange, you can buy another property. That's, that's the most common. Um, uh, Tenant in common. Yeah, 
yeah, tenant common at a small interest in, in, a, in a larger piece of property. Delaware Statutory Trust is actually, it's, it's almost like a real estate investment trust in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a portfolio of properties. Uh, typically, will where they will there will be several properties, which I I personally like that better than the tenant in common because there's just a little bit more diversification in your portfolio. The the pros and cons. The pros are you're not managing it anymore, right? You just get a paycheck. It's you you basically it's a much simpler way to go. Uh, the cons are you're not managing the property. You lose control. So if things go wrong, you, you're not the one in charge of things. And what happened for tenant in common investments in the Great Recession was properties went down so far and the, and the general managers couldn't run them that some of those were given back to the bank and the people lost their investments. And those that were in those kind of investments regretted giving up control. So that's the downside. As far as the upside, uh, a, a simple way to get out of your property and, and not have to pay taxes and, and not, not be involved in the management, uh, I'm all for it. But just understand those risks. Yeah, maybe increase your cash flow a little bit there too. Um, but with anything, you just want to look at the fine print. There's a lot of um, cost fees, charges, and things like yeah, that that's, with some of these DSTs. So that's, just, that's a good point. In, internal charges can eat away a lot of the profits. Right. And then you just want to Look at really the the true cash on cash return that you're trying to get in, um, but shop around. Right? Yeah, yeah. I guess at, you know just with any investment, they're not all uh, created equal. Right. <clears throat> Ever read the book The Twelve Percent Solution? Have not. Have you? Uh, no. Okay. Next. I did. I did look it up there. Oh, you did. Yeah. You, you know did what, some research. I did. Yeah. You know what it is? What? It's a momentum. Strategy. Oh, momentum strategy. So sixty so percent stocks, forty percent fixed. And the, there's there's like three or four uh, stock in, uh, index funds that are to be picked based upon what's done well momentum wise, and then in terms of the fixed income, I forget what that that's in. But you just you kind of and then you can get completely out of stocks depending upon the basic criteria. And it's claimed that over 40 years it's earned 12 percent. Is it um, a true momentum play, or is it a is it more of a uh, just a timing play? Well, I think those two words can be used interchangeably. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) So the timing is I'm in the market, I'm out of the market, I'm in the market, I'm out of the market. The momentum play is, is I'm investing in what's done well recently, right? And, And so, but apparently what, at least what I read was if, if things don't meet the, if the four investments, if none of those meet the criteria for stocks, you get out completely. So it's, it's, I guess it's a sort of a combination of the both. Huh. All right. Well, uh, Batman, I'll, I will I will check it out. I'll, I'll, I'll read that. <laughs> and then uh, finally, qualified opportunity zones, which is somewhat new, I guess. Yeah, brand new with the new tax law. This is actually another way to uh, to postpone capital gains on sales of property or or virtually anything for that matter. You could sell a stock, you could sell a business, you could sell a piece of property. And what happens with a qualified opportunity zone is, let's say uh, you've got a gain, in his case, $1.1 million. Batman would have to invest $1.1 million in an opportunity zone to avoid paying any current taxation. Yeah, but the opportunity zones, too, are... (laughs) There's zones looking for opportunity that are not necessarily like the, the... greatest areas in town. That's right. There's a reason why they're <laughs> that way. And furthermore, I would say this, this is just a general comment with no area specific in mind. Because this new tax law came out, uh, there was a lot of new money in the opportunity zones and the prices went up fairly quickly. So it's like 
is it too late to get in? I, I don't know, but I would just be careful. I would be careful with that because what you're doing is you're taking some of your hard-earned money and putting it into an investment that you may or may not really want. But, right, for tax benefit. But if, the, if, if it does make sense investment-wise, here's what you get. Uh, if you own the property for at least five years, 10% of the gain gets forgiven. If you own it for seven years, five, another 5% gets forgiven. So 15% is tax-free. Uh, in about seven years from now, you'll have to pay that tax. I think it's in 2027, if I'm not, making, not mistaken. So you actually have to pay the tax. However, any additional... Uh, gain on sale on the opportunity zone itself will be 100% tax free. That, that's the idea. And there are designated opportunity zones in uh, virtually every state uh, and every county. Uh, Samuel wrote in. Uh, he's from San Diego. Great show, Andy, Big Al, Joe. I enjoy the weekly podcast. Thanks for the ongoing education. My question. I want to keep half my retirement savings invested in the market and half invested in a safe product yet still have the ability for the safe half to accumulate during retirement. What do you recommend for safety these days? CDs are awful, less than 2%, not likely to keep up with inflation. Some annuities look okay, uh, offering a max of 3 to 3.5% returns. And that's not even getting into why Joe hates annuities. I do hate annuities. You do, don't you? I, I don't hate annuities. That sounds like I'm He wrote it Fisher. in all caps, too. It does sound like you're And fishing. he did actually say that some annuities look okay to bad. Okay So to that's bad. his range. <laughs> yeah. That, no, that is a range. Nothing good. Uh, bonds seem to be risky, just as risky as stocks. Any advice for safe investments would be greatly appreciated. All right. So risk is a relative word. Would you agree with that? Yes. So explain what you mean there. Well, I, I think Samuel is looking at this... Um, not in a bad way. I'm not going to knock how he's thinking about it, but you have to take a look at the risk of the entire portfolio right in its entirety versus splitting it up saying, I'm going to have half of this subject to risk, market risk, and the other half safe. Um, I think you start with safe should be your cash, cash reserves, sure. money used for emergencies, right? Something happens to you, something happens to the spouse, you have cash that you can rely upon to cover you know, the basic necessities for a certain period of time. If this is a portfolio based on retirement, uh, then you want to look at the total return of the overall portfolio. So he's trying to pick and choose investments a little bit. Well, he's trying to get the best one of each, is, yeah. is what he's thinking. And it, it's hard when you do that. I agree with you because... You, you get yourself bogged down. Like, for example, we've had a, what, 10-year bull run. And so when you look at your bonds, you go, why, why do I have bonds, right. right? But if you look at the total portfolio and notice that you weren't near as volatile as some, and, and as a matter of fact, if you've got a portfolio with risk and safety, then you can weather storms better. Uh, when it comes to the fixed income or the safer part of your portfolio, the way I would say it is uh, we, we like shorter-term, high-quality bonds, which do not have a great rate of return. But they do tend to uh, be better than CDs over the long term. And they also tend to go up a bit during bad markets that kind of helps uh, negate some of that down market. So, but but I, I really, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's a good idea to focus on that as an individual return. you got to look at the whole portfolio. Right, because the, you, you tend to 
um, segment your portfolio and say, well, this is really good. Well, what defines really good? A rate of return? You know, well, if you're looking at U.S. growth companies, yeah, then those are really good right now in this time period. Right. But what is it to say what's going to happen by the end of the year? They could be down 20%. And then, so d- does that mean that they're not good anymore? You know, bonds are risky as stocks. Well, it depends on what type of bonds that you own. I mean, do you have high yield bonds, longer maturity bonds? What kind of credit risk are you taking? What kind of term risk are you taking? You know, because you just want to look at what are your goals, what target rate of return do you want to accomplish with the overall portfolio, and then you look from a risk perspective, how much are you willing to lose, right? Um, And if it's zero, well, then, yeah, then you would go into a fixed product, such as, and he wants a product, a CD, an annuity, right. you know. Well, why don't you buy an MLP, you know, right? <laughs> right? Or an individual bond, you know. So we're not product salespeople; we're we're advisors. So um, I'm sure you could get pitched several different products that will give you certain rates of return. Um, looking at, for instance, um, indexed CDs, you could buy those. Oh, look at these, or you know, the whole indexed annuity BS, and oh, the list goes on and on and on. <laughs> right. So. I would say stay diversified, understand what target rate of return that you need to generate, mitigate the risk as much as you can. We like to use very high-quality short-term bonds uh, in the form of mutual funds ETFs uh, that are very liquid, very cheap. Uh, You're not going to get a huge rate of return, but it's going to buffer the downside. Um, Another thing, uh, I heard this example once, is that let's say you you have kids, Al. Yes. Let's say they come home from school and they, they have their report card. And then they have four A's and a F. Okay, right. what are you going to focus on? Yeah, the F. The F, of course. Right? Even though they got four A's, yeah. it's like, well, no, you're totally going to ignore the four A's, but you're going to blow them up on the F. Sure. So that's what he's kind of looking at here too. Is that when you look at an overall portfolio, it's like you're trying to pick or select investments. It's a lot more challenging today. To that's do that's that. a great analogy. Yeah, and great. you're right. I would focus on the F. Yeah, you would kick his ass. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got Steve. He writes in from San Diego. Hi, Joe and Al and Andy, in parentheses. Did you put that in, Andy, so your name is mentioned? <laughs> yeah, that must be a joke. <laughs> Guaranteed. That's exactly well, what happened. because it's spelled right, so I think she did. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Thanks so much for your answer recently about ways to think about selecting funds in a 401k. I wanted to drill down a little deeper, if I can. Uh, the biggest takeaway from your answer for me is to look at asset classes versus performance. All right, see? All right. Way to go, Steve. I have 30 funds in my 401k. Suppose I decide to allocate 20% of my contributions to international funds to get exposure to that asset class. Four of the funds in the 401k are in the international category. A diversified emerging markets fund, a foreign large growth fund, a, a foreign large blend fund, a foreign large blend index fund uh, with a low expense ratio. What criteria would you look for to help you decide which of these four funds to contribute to and what proportion? Under what circumstance would you pick one and put the full 20% in that versus dividing 20% among some combination of the four? Thanks so much again for the great show. I'm sure uh, not the only one out there who really looks forward to the show each week. Oh, that just made my heart. <laughs> that's really sweet. Uh, that you don't say that's really sweet to a 
Actually, I, I will. Die. It's really sweet, Steve. I, thank I, you. I, re- I realized Steve, that, that is as so soon as, sweet of you. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, I was thinking it was Cindy, and then I, I said, "I sweet," and I looked at it was Steve. I go, "Whoops! You can't, you can't pull that back." <laughs> Steve, that's so sweet of you. Oh, thank you so much. That's Steve. just awesome. Okay, all right. Um, so, I like where you're where, where you're going here, Steve. A couple of things. I got a couple of notes. Um, when you're contributing to a 401k plan, what most people do, let's say he's going to put 20% in a foreign fund, 20% in a U.S. fund, maybe 20% in another fund, and blah, 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 blah. Right? On your contributions, try to look at an asset class that is going to give you the highest expected rate of return and also the most volatility. Because as you're contributing to a 401k plan, you're putting money in on a biweekly basis. And so as markets go up and down, it's called dollar cost averaging. If I'm putting in $200 biweekly and the market goes down, I'm still putting my $200 in. I'm buying more shares, right? So you want to look at the shares that you're purchasing, not necessarily, right, the price when you're contributing to a 401k plan. Because the more shares ultimately that you own, the the, the better off you're going to be. So as a contribution, look at more volatile funds, such as emerging markets, such as smaller caps, such as value-type companies, because you're going to see more volatility there. So as you contribute, you're going to then probably reap a little bit better rewards if the market is volatile. That is not stating put 100% into emerging markets in in your entire balance. You want to have a globally diversified portfolio. But as you contribute each month or biweekly, Use something that's a little bit more volatile because of dollar cost averaging, then rebalance at the end of the year. To answer um, his question in regards to which fund should he select, what do you think, Al? He wants 20% in international. Yeah, assuming that's the right allocation. I mean, the first question is what, what, what other investments do you have and does it make sense to have 20%? But let's make that assumption, okay? So if it were me and I determined I wanted 20% international with these four choices... I would probably do about a quarter in emerging markets and three quarters in the foreign large blend index fund with a low expense ratio. Yep, I agree 100%. But I think the, the, the real answer to the question is how much should he have in international? 20% yeah. seems low. It seems low. And, and I guess when you think about it, I mean, a lot of people are, are they're not really used to investing internationally, and even 10% seems like a lot. But the world is a global economy. And I think the, uh, I, you know, well, what would be a better ratio, do you think, in terms of how much international versus domestic? Well, I, if you look at the global market capitalization, right? Uh, we're not, uh, you know, if I look at the global markets, the USA is not 90% or 80%. Yeah. It's more like 60 or 50% or even 40%. Right. I think it's, I think it's, I think 40. Right. I think it's 40. I think international 60. 60, right? Yeah. Of the global market capitalization sure. of the world. Sure. So if I'm just investing 80% of my money in US, I'm, I'm, I'm missing a huge component of the overall markets. Yeah. And I think the other people think the thing that people don't realize is international markets do not go up and down at the exact Exact same times as U.S. and so we'll have we, we can have periods of time where there's a lot of growth in the U.S. and then it switches to international and those periods of time can be months, weeks, years, right. and you never know which is going to pop compared to the other one. So it's good to have both. Right, and and that's correlation, right? So you want to take a look there. And why would we want um, 
the why are we choosing emerging markets is a different asset class than your foreign stocks. So we would want you to have international exposure, but then a, another piece in foreign stocks. So that's why we we picked two of those funds. Uh, thanks a lot, Steve, for the question. So how's your investment mix, and why is it like that? To learn how to grow your investments in all market environments, how to avoid poor investing decisions, and how to protect yourself from risk, download our white paper, Eight Timeless Principles of Investing. It's free. It's in the podcast show notes just before the transcript of today's episode, and it'll help you feel more confident in your portfolio, even when markets are volatile. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to get yours. For more in-depth financial guidance, click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner who can help you figure out if you're on track to accomplish your goals in retirement. You don't even have to be local to where we are here in Southern California for that assessment. Our advisors can even do it via web meeting. Now let's get back to your emails. If you've got a money question, click Ask Joe and Al on air in the podcast show notes and send it on in. We got Sam. He writes in from North Carolina, Big Al. Yes. Okay. <laughs> he goes, Big Al and Joe, enjoy your show and your humor and wisdom. So he's like, in a Forbes magazine article in December 2019, Jim Lang wrote that under the Secure Act beginning in 2020, if a person dies and leaves a Roth IRA, then only the basis, date of death, question mark, comes out tax-free to the beneficiaries. Any increase in the inherited Roth IRA due to dividends, capital gains, market value increase is taxed at ordinary income tax rates, question mark. If this interpretation is true, then that we likely have the effect of shortening the distribution for an adult beneficiary of an inherited Roth IRA to a much shorter time period, um, a shorter period of time, and possibly as soon as possible. So he's thinking, man, if, if, if I keep it in the Roth, all the additional growth is going to be taxed at ordinary income. Let's just blow the thing out, right. tax-free, and then move on. Sort of negates the, the benefit of sure. the Roth. Yeah. Um, that would be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. That would be news. It's not true, by uh, the way. Uh, so Why? At least in a brokerage account, uh, you know, the qualified dividends, long-term capital gains would be taxed at a favorable federal income tax rate. Example, Big Al dies. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm, I left a million dollars to my colleagues. <laughs> yes. To your colleague, Joe. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Al. You're welcome. I appreciate that. If You're- Joe leaves the money in his inherited Roth IRA and waits 10 years to distribute, he <laughs> might be forced with reporting a million dollars of ordinary income, assuming a 7% rate of return in the 10th year. So what the example is, Big Al dies, leaves me a million bucks, I have it in the Roth, it grows at 7% for 10 years, now the million dollars is worth $2 million. Sure. So I cash it out at the 10th year, the $1 million comes out tax-free, the other million dollars is taxed at ordinary income. Sam goes on and goes, seems to me, it would be much better to go ahead and distribute the full million dollars and invest the money in a tax-efficient fashion and likely wind up with a lot more after-tax money. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Um, well, Sam, I think you misread the article. I know Jim Lang. He's been on the show multiple times. He has. Smart Not guy. a while. Yeah. Not a while. It's kind of boring. <laughs> You didn't have to go there. <laughs> I love Jim Lane. He's a CPA. Yes, what do you expect? Yes. 
Yes. You're sitting next to one. Uh, I think he's really interesting. <laughs> you guys go out and have beers or just, a beer. Just a, yeah, yeah, yeah. We split one. <laughs> we, don't want to get, don't wanna get out of beer. control. We order a beer with two glasses. <laughs> don't want to get out of control. And we still Uber home. <laughs> oh, a CPA party. It's amazing. That's <laughs> oh, good God. stuff. Um, oh, so I. Well, so Jim didn't say that. So yeah, I agree. Something something was amiss in your understanding because Roth IRA accounts, whether they're your own or whether they're, they get, you inherit them, the money all comes out tax free, uh, and that's the principal, the growth, the income, everything. Um. So I read the article. Did, and did you see where he got it? Yeah. Okay. And there was a statement there. It says what many IRA owners don't account for is that earnings on the withdrawals, not, right, so he has to withdraw the money, um, also yes. lose the protection from income taxes. Yes, This okay. is true whether it's an inherited account, is a traditional IRA, or a Roth IRA. So if you're contemplating your estate plan, it's important to understand that your beneficiaries will have to pay taxes on dividends, interest, and realized capital gains that is earned on the money they withdraw from the inherited IRA or inherited Roth IRA. Oh, that's the key word then. Okay. So I think he missed the word withdrawal. Right. So if it stays in the Roth, it's 100% tax-free, but the withdrawals that you take out will be taxed at ordinary income rates if it's classified as an ordinary income tax event or dividends or cap gains. And it is true that under the SECURE Act, you do have to pull the money out within 10 years. It's just tax-free, all of it. Yeah, 100% tax-free. That's why I think the strategy that a lot of you need to be looking at is that if you have large IRA balances, we are all-time low tax environment, is that does it make sense to convert to the Roth? Because then you're non-spouse beneficiaries, even though they can't stretch, it's 10 years, and then that's not going to be taxable to them. And a lot of times what we see that people that inherit a large IRA balance are in their like peak earning years. You know what I mean? How old are you, Al? 60? Yeah. And your parents are what? 80? Yeah, they're, they're mid to late 80s. Right. Okay. So let's say if they, they, they have pensions, though. They might have a large IRA. Does the old man have some cash? Uh, not much. Okay. No, because they, they just came about. I mean, they first started IRAs, I think, in 1980 80s. or 84. 87. 1980. Huh? 87? 84? No, no. It was the early 80s, yeah. I think. I know this answer. It's been a while since I <laughs> had an answer. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so no. And actually, that's consistent with almost everyone we talk to that's in their 80s. They don't have a big IRA because they hadn't been around that long. Right. IRAs were established by legislation passed in 1974. Yeah, 74, ERISA. 74, yes, wow. Yes, 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 ERISA. Well, yes. no one really But did. you could only put $5 in them. Yeah, it was like, was it 500? It was It was some low it number. It was so low number. Yeah. And then, right, so um, what the hell happened in 87? 87 was the Tax Simplification Act That's right. under Reagan. Reagan. Yep. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Got it. This one actually came from YouTube. Ace. Synapse? Something like that. All right. YouTube username. I saw your video, top three IRA mistakes to avoid. And I had a question about something you stated. Uh, Robert McCulloch um, actually stated that, and we taped that in November of 2018. Uh, You said that an IRA can be funded for the prior calendar year up to April 15th. Was that true? No, we were lying. 
We just get really bad information and put it on YouTube. <laughs> so that you have to write us a question. Yes. If that is true, does that also mean you can do amended returns to fund a prior year as well? If you had not, but were eligible to fund an IRA then too. All right. So you file your taxes on April 15th. You have until the April 15th tax filing deadline to fund an IRA. So yes, that is true. And the Robert reason, was not lying to you. The, oh, we're not lying. <laughs> we're not getting you know bad info out there. So in, unless you file your return in January and you funded, or maybe you've been funding an IRA, I don't really understand the question. It's like, did you fund an IRA and now you want to amend the return to take the deduction? Or you're like, all right, well, you, you already filed your return in January and you have until April 15th to make an IRA contribution. Can you amend your return and put the $6,000, $7,000 in the IRA and take the deduction? The answer is yes. So for 2019, if you already filed your tax return and the date is January 20-something, that's eager beaver right there. I usually wait till like October 14th. So, well, that further complicates it. Well, yeah. So, I mean, if you file your return prior to April 15th, you're eligible to make an IRA contribution. Yes, you can amend your return, make an IRA contribution, and fund it. So, Can you do that until October? No. Okay. No. No. Tax filing deadline is April 15th, October 15th for extension, but IRA contribution deadlines is April 15th. So this only makes sense if you've already filed your return for 2019 and you realize because you watched our video on YouTube, the top three IRA mistakes to avoid, oh, I didn't fund my IRA. I already filed my return. You can file an amended return and put in the whatever amount that you want to put into your IRA. Hopefully that that helps. I've posted the video in question, Three IRA Mistakes to Avoid, in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, along with the links to subscribe to our YouTube channels with over 700 educational videos for you to binge. Check out Joe and Big Al on seasons one through five of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, including their most popular episode from all the way back in season one. It's called Find Out How Much Money You Need to Retire. Season six is coming soon, so you'll want to subscribe so you can see how much better the fellas are on TV nowadays. You can also listen to this podcast on YouTube if that's your thing, and you can see how excited our financial advisors are to be on camera answering common money questions. Click the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app to go to the show notes where you'll find those links to subscribe to our YouTube channels. So we had this chid, chid, chidham, chidham, cheatum, cheatum. He wrote in a comment, too slow and annoying voice. Who's slow and who's got the annoying voice? Read on. I started listening to this with high hopes, but the people talking are too slow and put you to sleep. There are unnecessary distractions, talking about non-financial nonsense, repeating same sentence multiple times, especially the lady in the podcast. <laughs> I got called the lady. The lady in the podcast. What does that mean? Repeating the same sentence multiple times. I mean, that's me. I'm the idiot because I can't read. Get Maybe confused. you're the lady of the podcast. I, I, I might be. He might think I'm the lady. Joanne. He's probably thinking. Artificially laughing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
It appears like they purposely drag each episode to make it longer. I'm unsubscribing. There are plenty of other podcasts which come to the point right away without dragging. Well, I'm very sorry, Chidam. The funny thing is, in November, he wrote a glowing review. Apparently, after listening to it for a couple of months, he decided he didn't think that way anymore. Yeah, because we got... I don't know. I, I don't think I come off. Well, maybe when he say too slow, it's like maybe he's thinking like me with my mental. I, I talk fairly fast. You do. But it takes you a little while to get your thoughts Yeah, because collected. I'm slow. I'm, yeah. I'm special. Hey, if you guys got comments, got complaints, I love them. Makes me strong. Then I go home and cry. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them coming. You know, you give us those ratings, right? We can't, we can't ask for them, but people we do. We can them. ask people to subscribe and we can ask people to share it. Yes, subscribe, share, write a comment. Tell everybody else how much you think this podcast sucks. Yes, yes, yes. I this like is that. awful. You should listen to it. We got James from Arizona. We've been sitting on these emails for a while because James takes advantage of us <laughs> by sending us hundreds of emails. Well, that means he's a committed listener. That is. Hello, team YMYW. You had a recent request to do more than one podcast per year, and no, I would like week, to put per week. <laughs> oh, per <laughs> Ooh, per year. That would be perfect if we just did one per year. <laughs> uh, one per week. He would like to put his vote in uh, that we do more. Remember, so, Marcus was the one that suggested that we should do more. So that, apparently, our regular listeners really want to hear a lot. Yeah, and some don't because we go slow and we have annoying voices. Exactly. So whatever. All right, so yeah, James, we're thinking about it. I don't know how far that thinking will go, but um, uh, we appreciate you listening and sending in some questions. He's got one, two, three questions that I'm going to rifle through. He's got four. He's got four. There's another one on the next page. Got it. When I receive my annual Social Security statement, it tells me what my expected monthly benefit will be at age 62, 67, or uh, full retirement age, and age 70, as long as I keep earning the same salary. Is there an easy way to calculate my benefit if I were to stop working at 60 or 62, but not collect my benefits until age 67 or 70? Also, does the estimated benefit they publish include estimated COLAs? That will happen between now and then. If not, is there a certain factor that your firm uses to estimate the future payout since you are looking at the future spending based on some inflation factor? Or do you just assume no COLA to be conservative? I'm working on my master spreadsheet to figure out my distribution strategy, and that is one thing that is still not clear to me. Yeah, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of meat on the bone here. So let's just start here. How they calculate the benefit is your 35 years of wages, top 35 years. If you have less than 35 years, they're going to put zeros in those Years, So there, it's just going to be an average of the 35 years. Um, so they use an inflation factor of the years that you worked in, you know, 30 years ago, and they put a uh, present value on that to come up with the annual amount or monthly amount. I think on the Social Security statements, and I will double check this and correct myself later because I think I'm probably wrong, but I think they only go to that you are uh, – on the Social Security statements, they're assuming – Let's say I'm 40 years old. I'm going to look at my Social Security statement, and it's going to show me the benefits at 62, my full retirement age at age 70. And so when I look at that, they're going to assume that I'm making the same amount of money that I'm currently making now all the way up until age 60 was my understanding, not full retirement age. 
So if you did retire at 60, it's going to give you a similar number, right? It's going to look at 35 years, and they're going to average out the 35 years. If I don't have 35 years, and if I retire at 60 or 67, they're still going to put zeros in those dollars anyway. Uh But if I have my full 35 years by the age of 60, I think they might only go to age 60, but I'm I'm probably 25% on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm just making it up as I go here. For some reason, I thought I read that, but maybe I read it from someone that wrote something wrong. So the COLAs, no, on your Social Security statements, they're not putting in any type of cost of living adjustment on those estimated figures. So in most cases, it's going to be higher if you have a full 35-year work history and you've made roughly the same amount of money. If you don't have a 35-year full work history and retire early, let's say at age 55, they're going to put in zeros because they assume that you're going to work at least until 60 or full retirement age. And so those will be zeros. That average is going to be a lot lower. But if I work my full 35 years and they average it out, they're not assuming a cost of living. So your benefit is probably going to be higher once you do receive the benefit. How we look at cost of living adjustments, we use a 2% COLA. I would, if you want to be a more conservative, I would probably put 1%. On average, over Social Security, it's been around a 2% COLA. Of course, not every year. That's an average. Some years it's higher. Some years it's lower. Some years it's right zero. As we look at the age wave, and now this trust fund is going to be depleted, you, know, you might want to use a more conservative number, and I think we are, as a firm, going to do that as well. Hopefully that answers your question to some degree. Okay, number two question here. So what is the process, the minimum required years, to lease the current cabin and new cabin? So looks like James has a cabin. He's looking to sell the cabin and purchase a new cabin, but he wants to sell the cabin using a 1031 exchange. Uh, That's a tax-free exchange. It's a like exchange, so he's going to exchange one cabin that's a rental into another cabin, and he's like, what's the current or required years to lease? I would want that two years on my tax return, James. So let's say you have your cabin. You're going to exchange it. You're going to do a like-for-like exchange and purchase another rental property. That rental property, then you want to convert that into a second home. You want to make sure that you have rent shown on a tax return for at least two years minimum would be my recommendation, or else it'd be a sham, and then the 1031 would not go through. You know, Upon audit, you would say, no, you didn't really exchange this. It wasn't a like-for-like. Um, you kind of work, work the system, and you'd get penalized and fully taxed on whatever gains that you should have paid tax on. So James has a rental property that has an increased uh, value, and he doesn't necessarily want to sell it outright and pay the tax. So he's looking at a tax deferment of the overall gains. So you can use a 1031 exchange to say, all right, well, I want to purchase this rental property. I'm just going to exchange the basis into the new property. Please seek your tax advisor on this. Uh, We don't give tax. We don't give advice at all on this show. Uh, Just FYI, this is not advice. This is just fodder. And then finally, would you suggest aggressive contributions to my deferred compensation plan versus aggressive contributions to my taxable account? All right, let's break this thing down. So I'm contributing the max amount that could be matched in the deferred account, but since it will be paid as ordinary income over five years when I leave the company and retire, I'm thinking it might be better to be more aggressive in a taxable account instead of the extra in my deferred comp plan. 
I'm a dis, um, I am disciplined to make automatic weekly investments in a taxable account, and I'm already funding my Roth 401k to the full mansion, doing the full backdoor Roth for my wife and I. I'm also planning to max out my current tax brackets to make in-service Roth 401k conversions at the end of each year until the current tax rates expire. I just don't know if I'm missing something on the deferred comp strategy. Thoughts? All right, so deferred comp. Um, sounds like James is an executive of some firm, and they have deferred compensation plans. And what that means is that you can then defer some sort of your comp- compensation. So you get paid X amount of dollars. You can defer some of that. The, the caveat is you have to elect how you're going to receive that deferred compensation back out to you before you elect what you want to defer. So let's say I want to defer $50,000 from taxes this year. Mm-hmm. So I would have to usually elect that the previous year to do so, but then I also need to put on there when I want to receive it. Do I want to receive a lump sum in year X? Do I want to receive a 10-year payment of that? You know, So if it's you know, $50,000, maybe it's a five-year payment of $10,000 back to me per year. So this year. is really some forward-looking projections exactly. you're making. Exactly. And it's also an asset of the company. So if you put a lot of money in the deferred comp plan, it's tr- it's on the, the company's balance sheet. So if the company goes under or bankrupt, you know, that money's subject to that risk. So just kind of FYI there. Um, my rule of thumb, James, is that you want to fully fund the 401k plan up to the match. Then from there, you want to fully fund Roth IRAs. Sounds like you're doing that. So you're fully funding the 401k up to the match. You're funding IRAs, and then you're converting those into Roth IRAs. I didn't see you, though. It just said you're doing it for your wife. So no, I would it wanna... says my wife and I. Oh, what? okay. So then I would go back to the 401k and make sure that you're maxing that out. If that is fully maxed, then I would probably want more money into a taxable account. If you don't have money in a brokerage or taxable account, I would start there because the deferred comp is only deferring your comp to a later date that's going to be taxed at ordinary income rates. And if you already are a disciplined saver that has a lot of money already in retirement accounts, you might be just adding a little bit more tax burden long term. And especially if tax rates are due to to change and potentially go up, you might be saving a little bit of tax now, but you might be paying in a higher tax rate later. So you want to look at that. How much money do you currently have in all of these different plans? How much money do you have at a Roth versus a regular 401k versus a brokerage account? That's going to add to that overall decision to see kind of where the balance lies. So I'm a big believer in more diversification within all of the accounts. Also though, but if you're in the 37% tax bracket, you're making a million bucks a year. All right, well, then it might make sense to utilize the deferred comp plan to get yourself into a lower tax bracket. So it all really depends on those types of factors. So really appreciate you listening to the show, James. You know, you're always welcome to write in. Um, we'll answer them right here, even if it takes me a couple of months to get to them. That's it for us today. I appreciate you hanging out. We'll see you again next week. Show Scott your money you off. That's the end of the financial content. So if we're too slow and annoying for you, feel free to bail out now. But if you enjoy the non-financial derails and banter, stick around to the very end of today's episode. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner from Pure, either in person or at one of our four Southern California offices in Woodland Hills, San Diego, Irvine, or Brea. 
Korea, or you can schedule a video web meeting if you're elsewhere in the country. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Speaking of Batman, have you seen The Joker? Uh, not recently. Not recently. The movie. <laughs> oh, the movie. What the? Jeez. <laughs> not recently. No, he's just kind of walking around town. No, I haven't seen him at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. So, I kind of hang out in different I, areas of town than The Joker. I, I haven't been to Comic-Con lately. <laughs> I haven't been to Gotham City in a couple months. <laughs> I don't know. Is he still causing havoc over there? Yeah. No, I didn't see the I didn't see the movie or the Joker himself. Either way. Oh my God, Alan! Sometimes I just love you. <laughs> that's, that's why you have me. Here. <laughs> no, I haven't seen him lately. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you seen that movie? No. Oh, jeez. Now you were when you were at Comic Con doing your Man on the Street. Yeah. You interviewed who? Superman and Darth Vader? Or, just every I mean, just su- the, everyone. Yeah. 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 Th- that's th- those tapes are in the archives. <laughs> <laughs> they never made it out to the jail. I don't think they did. Yeah. Day, did they? We, 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 we could put those out. Was there a problem with it? No, I don't know. <laughs> Just a little issue with some editing. That's Got all. It. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but okay. no, I saw it with, with uh, uh, Phoenix. Joaquin. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah. Story, but I kicked him out of my bar. Joaquin. Yeah, when I, I went to school at University of Florida. That's in Gainesville, Florida. And he, um, his family's from there. Had a little too much to drink? A little? I, I don't know who the hell he was. He was all dirty. Oh. I don't know if he was. Yeah. <laughs> and it was late. And he wanted a beer. And I was like, hey. And then all the girls were like, hey, you know who that is? And I go, yeah, it's a guy that's getting the hell out of the bar. <laughs> 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 they were like, no, it's Joaquin Phoenix. I was like, oh, right. who the hell's that? I knew River he Phoenix. He still has to go. <laughs> I, I knew River Phoenix. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but I guess this was a while ago. Yeah, but I did see the movie, and it's not what I was expecting at all. The Joker. Oh it, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be like really dark. It's or super it? dark and yeah. depressing, and just yeah, it's. I, he did a really good job. He's a phenomenal actor. Yeah, I wish yeah. I would have had a beer with him, or maybe two. Actually, I will say, I will say this. I actually am aware of the movie. Oh, you are. Yeah, so that's something. <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> uh, yeah, he won. Well, what best actor for the Golden Globe? He's up for Academy Award for that movie. Yeah, eleven. Uh, it was like the highest of wow. the Golden really? Awards is the Joker. So, it oh. doesn't sound like the kind of movie I want to see. Uh, yeah, you'd probably cry out. Yeah, I mean, where's, <laughs> where's, where's the Hallmark ending? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this town is saved <laughs> by, right. by someone, you know, saving the cookie factory. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you like those. That's what I want to see. Oh, got it. 750 educational videos. 750. Now we're down to 733. Okay. I blew some of them out because they suck. Okay. Well, 733. (laughs) Were those the one I did? No. Yours are the good ones. Oh, good. Secure Act is one of the most popular videos we've ever done. 